European Heart Journal, Issue at a Glance, Volume 43, Issue 22. Focus Issue, Arrhythmias, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Filippo Crea, read to you by Morgan Bryan. New Avenues in the Prevention of Sudden Cardiac Death This focus issue on arrhythmias contains a state-of-the-art review article entitled Cardiac Sympathetic Denervation in the Prevention of Genetically Mediated Life-Threatening Ventricular Arrhythmias by Peter Schwarz from the Istituto Auxologico Italiano in Milano, Italy and Michael Ackerman from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, USA. Cardiac arrhythmias of genetic origin are often deadly. Their management and prevention are among the potentially most rewarding challenges for pediatric and adult cardiologists and electrophysiologists and for genetic cardiologists, because at variance with those representing the inexorable combination of advanced structural cardiac damage, they do not represent a self-defeating objective. Proper management of patients affected by genetic disorders causing life-threatening arrhythmias is important for several reasons, including even societal ones given the predominantly young age of those affected. Incorrect management often has dire consequences, ranging from unnecessary psychological damage for the patients whose life becomes too limited by the fear of sudden death, to equally avoidable tragedies when the entire armamentarium of effective therapies is not fully utilised. In this review, Schwarz et al., focus primarily on long QT syndrome, or LQTS, and catecholaminergic polymorphic ventricular tachycardia, or CPVT, and deal specifically with the clinical impact of the most used cardiac sympathetic denervation, or CSD, namely left cardiac sympathetic denervation, or LCSD. The authors have used LCSD in the management of their patients with either LQTS or CPVT for a very long time and have been involved in approximately 500 interventions. It is based on their personal and direct experience that the authors wish to share their views with clinical cardiologists and electrophysiologists, adult and pediatric, and with genetic cardiologists. They begin the review by clarifying the history and rationale underlying sympathetic denervation therapy and continue with a disease-specific intensification of therapy and then with a discussion on how the impressive efficacy of LCSD should translate into guideline-directed therapy in both current and future guidelines to upgrade the quality of care in the era of precision medicine. In a second state-of-the-art review article entitled Sudden Cardiac Death in Congenital Heart Disease, Paul Carey and colleagues from the Université de Montréal in Canada note that sudden cardiac death, or SCD, accounts for up to 25% of deaths in patients with congenital heart disease, or CHD. To date, research has largely been driven by observational studies and real-world experience. Drawbacks include varying definitions, incomplete taxonomy that considers SCD as a unitary diagnosis as opposed to a terminal event with diverse causes, inconsistent outcome ascertainment, and limited data granularity. Notwithstanding these constraints, 
Identified higher-risk substrates include tetralogy of fallow, transposition of the great arteries, cyanotic heart disease, Epstein anomaly, and Fontan circulation. Without autopsies, it's often impossible to distinguish SCD from non-cardiac sudden death. Asystole and pulseless electrical activity account for a high proportion of SCDs, particularly in patients with heart failure. High-quality cardiopulmonary resuscitation is essential to improve outcomes. Pulmonary hypertension and CHD complexity are associated with lower likelihood of successful resuscitation. Risk stratification for primary prevention implantable cardioverter defibrillators, or ICDs, should consider the possibility of SCD due to a shockable rhythm, competing causes of mortality, complications of ICD therapy, and associated costs. Risk scores to better estimate probabilities of SCD and CHD-specific guidelines and consensus-based recommendations have been proposed. Subcutaneous ICD has emerged as an attractive alternative to transvenous systems in those with vascular access limitations, prior device infections, intracardiac shunts, or Fontan circulation. Further improving SCD-related outcomes will require a multidimensional approach to research that addresses disease processes and triggers, taxonomy to better reflect underlying pathophysiology, high-risk features, early warning signs, access to high-quality cardiopulmonary resuscitation and specialized care, and preventative therapies tailored to underlying mechanisms. Unexplained syncope is an important clinical challenge. In a clinical research article entitled Early and Late-Onset Syncope – Insight into Mechanisms, Arisa Turabi and colleagues from the Lund University in Malmö, Sweden, indicate that the influence of age at first syncope on the final syncope diagnosis is not well studied. Consecutive head-up tilt patients, N equaling 1,928, evaluated for unexplained syncope were stratified into age groups, less than 30, 30 to 59, and greater than or equal to 60 years, based on age at first syncope. Clinical characteristics and final syncope diagnosis were analysed in relation to age at first syncope and age at investigation. The age at first syncope had a bimodal distribution, with peaks at 15 and 70 years. In patients aged greater than or equal to 60 years, 12% had early onset and 70% had late onset syncope. Prodromes, 64% versus 26%, P being less than 0.001, and vasovagal syncope, or VVS, 59% versus 19%, P being less than 0.001, were more common in early onset, less than 30 years, compared with late onset, greater than or equal to 60 years, syncope. Orthostatic hypertension, or OH, 3% versus 23%, P being less than 0.001. Carotid sinus syndrome, or CSS, 0.6% versus 9%, P being less than 0.001. And complex syncope, less than one concurrent diagnosis, 14% versus 26%, P being less than 0.001, were more common in late-onset syncope.
The authors conclude that in patients with unexplained syncope, first ever syncope incidence has a bimodal lifetime pattern with peaks at 15 and 70 years. The majority of older patients present only recent syncope. OH and CSS are more common in this group. In patients with early onset syncope, prodromes, VVS and complex syncope are more common. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Sean Colburn and David Bendit from the University of Minnesota Medical School in Minneapolis, Minnesota, USA. The authors conclude that the system of study investigators provide important insights furthering understanding of the epidemiology of syncope stroke collapse across age groups. The large size of the study population and the consistent approach to diagnosis by acknowledged experts are strengths. Not unexpectedly, however, increased understanding inevitably raises additional issues that merit consideration. Silent brain infarcts appear to be clinically relevant. In a clinical research article entitled Silent Brain Infarct's Impact on Cognitive Function in Atrial Fibrillation, Michael Kuhner and colleagues from the University of Basel in Switzerland aim to investigate the association of clinically overt and silent brain lesions with cognitive function in atrial fibrillation or AF patients. The authors enrolled 1,227 AF patients in a prospective multi-center cohort study, the Swiss AF study. Patients underwent standardized brain magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, at baseline and after two years. The authors quantified new small non-cortical infarcts, or SNCIs, and large non-cortical or cortical infarcts, or LNCCIs, white matter lesions, or WMLs, and microbleeds, or MBs. Clinically, silent infarcts were defined as new SNCI stroke LNCCI on follow-up MRI in patients without a clinical stroke or transient ischemic attack, or TIA, during follow-up. Cognition was assessed using validated tests. The mean age was 71 years, 26% were females, and 90% were anticoagulated. Of the 68, or 5.5% of patients, with less than one SNCI stroke LNCCI, 60, or 88.2%, were anticoagulated at baseline, and 58, or 85.3%, had a silent infarct. Patients with brain infarcts had a larger decline in cognition than patients without new brain infarcts. New WMLs and MBs were not associated with cognitive decline. Huna and colleagues conclude that in a contemporary cohort of AF patients, 5.5% had a new brain infarct on MRI after two years. Most of these infarcts were clinically silent and occurred in anticoagulated patients. This manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Jared Bunch and Benjamin Steinberg from the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, Utah, USA. The authors conclude that the study authors are to be congratulated on the completion of this study that provides unique understanding of brain injury in patients with AF with contemporary management coupled with comprehensive brain imaging and cognitive assessments. These data raise concern 
of using the outcome of clinical or disabling stroke in trials of patients with AF alone, as this will probably significantly underestimate the actual brain injury events. These data should also question whether the term silent brain infarct may be a misnomer and at minimum should not be considered to mean lack of clinical consequences. Cognitive testing would seem prudent in these patients with incidentally found infarcts. Finally, given the frequency and significance of these events with contemporary therapies, we must question the mechanistic paradigm of AF and stroke, our contemporary treatments, and whether, as cardiologists, with a myopic view of the heart, its rhythm, and a tendency towards focal therapies as solutions, we should invite others to broaden our viewpoints and perspective to solve the pervasive problem before us. Cardiomyopathy patients are prone to ventricular arrhythmias, or VAs, and SCD. Current therapies to prevent VA include radiofrequency ablation to destroy slowly conducting pathways of viable myocardium, which support re-entry. In a translational research article entitled Biological Substrate Modification Suppresses Ventricular Arrhythmias in a Porcine Model of Chronic Ischemic Cardiomyopathy. James Dawkins and colleagues from the Schmidt Heart Institute in Los Angeles, California, USA, tested the reverse concept, namely that boosting local tissue viability in zones of slow conduction might eliminate slow conduction and suppress VA in ischemic cardiomyopathy. Exosomes are extracellular vesicles laden with bioactive cargo. Exosomes secreted by cardiosphere-derived cells, or CDCEXO, reduce scar and improve heart function after intramyocardial delivery. In a VA-prone porcine model of ischemic cardiomyopathy, the authors injected CDCEXO or vehicle into zones of delayed conduction defined by electroanatomic mapping. Up to one month post-injection, CDCEXO, but not the vehicle, decreased myocardial scar, suppressed slowly conducting electrical pathways, and inhibited VA induction by programmed electrical stimulation. In silico reconstruction of electrical activity based on magnetic resonance images, accurately reproduce the suppression of VA inducibility by CDCEXO. Strong antifibrotic effects of CDCEXO, evident histologically and by proteomic analysis from pig hearts, were confirmed in a co-culture assay of cardiomyocytes and fibroblasts. The authors conclude that biological substrate modification by exosome injection may be worth developing as a non-destructive alternative to conventional ablation for the prevention of recurrent ventricular tachyarrhythmias. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Maureen Casho and Fadi Akar from the Yale School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut, USA. The authors indicate that the study by Dawkins et al. established a roadmap for a novel antiarrhythmic strategy, which addresses a hallmark pathophysiological feature of the postmyocardial or MI infarction heart that was previously out of reach, namely fibrosis. As with any paradigm-shifting body of work, this study leaves us with several burning questions. Can CDC-derived exosomes be engineered to further maximize their cardioprotective features? What is the ideal dosing regimen 
for these paracrine-laden vehicles. What is the ideal therapeutic window for their delivery? Can one custom tailor their cargo according to the stage of remodeling to prevent unwanted effects, such as premature abrogation of compensatory remodeling, inflammation, and fibrosis that may promote cardiac rupture? What are the fibrosis-dependent and independent effects of CDC-derived exosomes, and do they play a role in the suppression of calcium-mediated triggers that initiate VT? Can advanced imaging of macrophage infiltration using positron emission tomography, or PET, tracers guide early delivery of these exosomes as a preventative measure following MI? Undoubtedly, these questions, and many more, will probably be addressed in future studies by this group of investigators, who appear to have successfully combined the best features of cell and gene therapies to address a major unmet clinical need. The issue is also complemented by two discussion forum contributions. A commentary entitled, Ablate and Pace for Patients with Atrial Fibrillation, Fragile Option, Argan Kaur and colleagues from the McMaster's University in Canada comment on the recent publication AV junction ablation and cardiac resynchronization for patients with permanent atrial fibrillation and narrow QRS, the APAAF-CRT mortality trial by Michele Brignole from the Ospedale del Ticulio in Lavagna, Italy. Brignole et al. respond in a separate comment. The editors hope that the listeners of this issue of the European Heart Journal will find it of interest.